I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. By nature, we humans are driven to improve our lives and make things better by adding, whether it's money, hobbies, friends, and so on. But instead of always adding, what happens if we subtract? People have been trying to make money off of kids' bikes for at least a hundred years. We've gotten training wheels, different contraptions that attach to the grown-up bikes, fatter tires, tubes, shock absorption. Finally, somebody thought to take away the pedals and it was just so much better. And later, why is it so hard to say no? How learning the language of refusal will allow you to say yes to the things that really matter. No is a complete sentence, uh, which essentially uh, suggests that you do not need to give a ton of explanations as to why you are saying no, as long as it stems from a place of power. The science of less and the skills behind saying no, all ahead on Life Examined. For thousands of years, humans have been really good at one thing in particular, adding. I'm not just talking about math here, but literally our ability to come up with new things. Ideas, products, designs, laws. And the more we added, the more our civilization grew. But where has this ability to add taken us now? With our cluttered calendars, our endless choices, our houses overstuffed with products? Could it be possible that the path to a more content and meaningful life could be found not in adding, but in subtracting things? In his latest book called Subtract, The Untapped Signs of Less, Lighty Klotz says we need to re-examine our human desire for more, 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 suggesting that it often prevents us from seeing easier and more effective solutions. Lighty Klotz is professor and director of the Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative at the University of Virginia, and he joins us now. Lighty Klotz, welcome to Life Examined. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's a thrill to be here. Um, let's talk about this idea of, of subtraction. And, and I want to begin with a story. I, I know you're raising two young kids, and, and oftentimes we hear that parents will learn things from their young kids in the process. And um, there, there's a fun anecdote that you share sometimes. Can, can you kind of uh, bring us into that story and tell us why, why it was important for you in this research? Mm -hmm. And it really was a turning point in the research. And so we have two young kids now, but at the time it was just one in our, who's now a six-year-old was a three-year-old at the time. And we were playing with Legos, which we did a lot of and still do a lot of. And the the problem that we had was um, we were making a Lego bridge and it wasn't level. Mm. Uh, And so I went to fix the problem. I turned around behind me to grab a block to add to the shorter column on the Lego bridge. Um, But by the time I had turned back around, my son had removed a block from the longer column. And so what was really useful in that was it, it crystallized some of my thinking about like less and, you know, minimalist design into the action that it takes to get there. And And so what had happened was here was this situation. In this case, it was a Lego bridge. But as we'll we'll see, this applies to all kinds of situations, whether it's physical things, you know, the ideas in our heads, um, the our social calendars. Whenever we have a situation that we try to improve from how it is to how we want it to be, that's the similar to the Lego bridge. And my first instinct was to think, what can I add here? How can Mm. I add to solve this? And my son, and you know, this is where he's six now. And I'll tell him today, I was like, Hey, you were on the radio in in California and (laughs) he's all proud of himself. And he goes into school and he's like, I'm teaching the world how to subtract. And, uh, and, but he's not a good subtractor. He just stumbled across it in this moment because he's, he plays Legos a lot, but my son, his first instinct was to take away. And so that kicked off you know, tens of thousands of hours of research that I did with other, you know, really great behavioral scientists showing that this is pretty similar to what happens to all of us when we think about trying to make things better right. is that our first thought is, hey, what can I add? And that's not necessarily a problem, but as we'll see, I'm sure in, in later in this discussion, it becomes a problem when it causes us to miss out on better options. And that that is what happens eventually. This kind of begs the larger question of why why it is that it seems like, I don't know if it's part of our human nature, biology, or this was something kind of, as you said, educated into us, that we tend to think about adding things to fix, uh, to fix a problem. So why, why do you think we do that? What's going on that that seems to be what we grasp towards um, when we're trying to problem solve? 
Yeah, I mean, the whole first half of the book talks about why this could be. And I think the first thing is that it's it's not one thing. I mean, no behavior is gets boiled down to it's like, oh, this was just because of some biological tendency that we had. So it's like these biological forces and, and cultural forces and then economic and educational kind of influences that we've been under all all work together. Um, and so I think it's I'm sure it's a little bit of all of those things, but it's really helpful to know about them um, as we try to, you know, overcome this tendency um, or and to find subtraction more often. So we'll start with the biological ones. I mm. mean, those are that's um, and these are things that have helped us pass down our genes basically throughout history. Um, and of course, you can see how this would be tied into our need to eat, right? To to get calories. Mm. Um, that's been an evolutionary helpful behavior and that requires you know acquiring things not just the food itself as you put it into your mouth but also like stockpiling food um, is a is an evolutionary behavior and you could see how that could tie into some of our adding tendencies another one that's maybe more surprising and what's surprising about it is just how how tied it is how tied it in it is to our to our biology is this need to show competence hmm. uh and so you know i knew we all had a need to show competence to show that we can interact with the world but i didn't realize how deep-rooted that is um and but the, w there's a classic example of the bowerbirds building their nests and so these are the the male bowerbirds build these fancy ceremonial nests, and then the female bowerbirds go around looking at the nests and decide who to mate with based on the mm. nest that they like right. the most. And the nests never get used for shelter, right? So shelter, you would say, oh, that's a basic need. But the females, after they mate with the males, go build a nest to raise the young. And so the whole point of these ceremonial nests is just to show that the male is effective at interacting with the world, and in this case, the physical world. And so a male who can build a fancy ceremonial nest, those are probably good genes that you know will make your kids more likely to be able to kids slash bowerbird offspring more sure. likely to be able to find uh find food um so this ability to display competence through additions to the physical world is also a deep-rooted evolutionary behavior and it's also more recently been shown that that same desire to display competence and and doing so through physical addition we also do it through like social additions so you know hey i'm i'm super busy look at all these things i'm checking off my to-do mm, list yeah. you're displaying competence there too and that's actually an evolutionary behavior yeah uh, well i mean this is it's fascinating to think of okay this is you know clearly the idea of addition brought us very far as a species but but what mm -hmm. do we do now in our lives where this starts to backfire i mean can you talk about how um maybe that aspect of our nature is not always as helpful as maybe it was when when things were just a little bit more about surviving yeah so you think about this in terms of deep history so we go from bowerbirds and then let's go to humans uh in the earliest form as as hunter gatherers right and roaming mm -hmm. around and there's just you know, I talked about how we overlook subtraction as a way to make things better. But most of the things that you would think about subtracting these days, whether it's a Lego block, whether it's, you know, the full scale equivalent, you know, taking a decrepit building out of a city, for example, I mean, or even subtracting a law that is no longer serving us well. These are new opportunities to subtract, mm. right? I mean, when you were building civilization at the beginning <laughs> the really adding was the the dominant option it was the better option and so like you said this has served us well not just from an evolutionary standpoint but also from the you know developing as as humans whether it's our our physical civilizations or whether it's like the ideas that form culture right you're adding ideas together you're adding organized religion you've got writing that allows mm -hmm. these ideas to fly all over the world much faster than they could have when people were doing when people were just hunter gathering and you could only pass things on by story uh and then you know and of course that explodes into where we're at today where i'm talking to you over zoom from for right. you know over the the radio from virginia and that's gonna go to a whole bunch of people in california i mean that's amazing and so so like you said adding has has long served us well but it's brought us to this place where the more we've added the more opportunities there are to subtract 
Can you give us some interesting examples of how mm-hmm. subtraction has worked in, it, it could be design or in everyday life around us. Um, can you point to a few things for us? Yeah, my favorite example, having young kids, is this uh, Strider bike. Mm. And so these are the they're miniature bikes um, with the pedals removed. And so the innovation is that somebody thought to take away the pedals. And Ryan McFarland, the founder of Strider Bikes, is the engineer who had that design insight. And what it allows is, you know, as soon as my son, even before he was playing Legos with me, and now my daughter, who's two, as soon as they can walk, they can walk on top of this bike and move it along. And they do that for about an hour. And then they've got that mastered. And then they start to coast a little bit. And another hour of practice about, and they've learned to balance. (laughs) Like Mm. my daughter zooming down the sidewalk last night at about eight miles an hour, (laughs) um, coasting, everybody looking at her like, whoa, that's amazing. And uh, so these bikes have given mobility to to kids at at an age when, you know, you and I couldn't couldn't ride bikes yet. And then after, you know, about two years of doing this, basically, as soon as my daughter is strong enough to pedal, she'll be able to ride a bike without training wheels, Mm -hmm. because she already knows how to balance. So it's just an invention that's improved the world, (laughs) added a lot of fun to little kids lives and to their parents lives. And the innovation was to to take away taking away the pedals. And there's been a lot of um, so what I like about it is it shows the power and subtraction. But it also is like, people have been trying to make money off of kids bikes for at least a hundred years and mm-hmm. nobody, you know, we've gotten training wheels, different, you know, contraptions that attach to the grown up bikes, you know, fatter tires, tubes, shock absorption. And it finally, somebody thought to take away the pedals and it was mm-hmm. just so much better. So that's one of my favorite examples. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting one. How could this also be used, um, in the, in the sense of a, like a very busy schedule, which I think mm-hmm. this is one that I, I just, I'd imagine almost anybody listening could relate to a different periods of their life, um, which is, we're just constantly adding things on. There's, you know, this idea of the cult of the busy. Um, if mm-hmm. you're not busy, something's wrong with you. Can you, can you apply some of these principles to just working this through a schedule and, and, and how we operate on a day-to-day level? A good example is my friend, Ben, who's, he's a co-author on this research that we did that shows people systematically overlook subtraction. And so we're about two years into the research together and Ben comes to me and he says, "Hey, I've uh, they've I've installed this Nobel outside of my office, and so it's this like Western triangle-shaped dinner bell that they ring whenever they say no to a task. And so, like, if his department chair says, "Hey, Ben, will you be on this committee?" Ben will say no, and he'll ring the Nobel and feel good about himself. And I'm, I'm like, "That's great, Ben, but all you've done is not added, right? Mm-hmm. You haven't actually subtracted something from your workload." And of course. You know, what you're saying, Jonathan, is the problem that I'm experiencing and I think everybody I know experiences is there's just too much to do, right? And we're not going to relieve that by not adding. We've got to actually take some things away. Never mind that we are actually adding things all the time, too. So um, as applied to our to-do list, it's like Ben rings this no bell and that's just for not adding. But we also need to think about stop doings. Um, and so it's like, okay, what on my calendar that I've been that I did last week, that I've done every week for the last year, do I no longer need to do? Or, you know, maybe it's still marginally beneficial, but not as beneficial as the the free time or something else that I could do at that time. So basically forcing yourself to think of what these stop doings are. The other reason that's really helpful is because you can, at the same time you're developing your to-do list, however you do that, right? Whether it's you do it every morning or once a week or once a month, force yourself to think about what your stop doings are. Mm-hmm. And that's you know a way to cue subtraction and really the only way to relieve this busy trap. Yeah, because I think what happens, Lighty, is, is we, we have all of these different components of our lives and then it feels as if we can't really give ourselves to them or or give the time that each of these different buckets in our lives deserve, right? So we're, mm-hmm. we're constantly just filling things up a quarter of the way and then feeling guilty <laughs> about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the issue is like this pervading sense of not doing enough, not being good enough and feeling guilty as a result of, of feeling like, oh, we're just kind of getting by in all these different areas of our life where I think what you're saying, which is so interesting to me is, let's see if maybe you can just take one of those buckets and throw it out. 
right? Right. Like that yeah, to you're me right. is, a, is a very powerful idea that could be applied to lots of people. Well, and you're exactly right about the guilt. I mean, because the people who have studied this, how people use their time at work, there's this woman, Leslie Perlow, who's just a you know really brilliant researcher. She's at Harvard, and for her dissertation, she studied time famine is, is what she called it. And she studied these software engineers. This was like at the beginning of the fantasy football era. So sure. a, a while back, but um, I mean, their behavior just, you know, reminded me of any office that I've ever worked in. And so the people had basically four categories of things that they did with their time. And I, I forget exactly what the categories were. Two were basically productive things. One was the, um, one was the fantasy football stuff, which is like, okay, that's just clearly not productive. And then the fourth category was the really key one. And it's like the stuff that you were doing just because you would, she didn't use guilty, but just is basically just because you would feel guilty if you weren't doing it. So this was like the engineers, she mm. studied software engineers and the engineers going out to lunch with the team. It's like, I didn't really want to do that, but I felt like I needed to do that. And I was going to let down my teammates if I didn't. And, you know, mm. so those are the types of things that, need to be subtracted away to relieve the time famine is what uh what leslie perlow found yeah and i think it's it's important to validate how hard this can be for people um Mm -hmm. living in in such a consumerist society where you go on your phone things are being marketed towards you and they're always you need this to feel a little bit better you need this to make your life a little bit more fulfilling you need this over here right i mean it is it is incessant and non-stop and I think to be able to say, like, start tuning some of this stop, stuff out and say it's not an issue of getting this. It's, it's going back to this question of subtraction. I, again, I, it's like that's a, that's a powerful principle. Yeah, that's very insightful. So you're exactly right. We're being bombarded with all these things. And I'd love to go back, too, to what you said about the, how hard it is because mm-hmm. I think that's part of the problem here is that we think subtraction is easy or we at least think that less is easy mm. and in fact it's harder i mean what our research showed again back to the the lego bridge example which you know we did research with way more convincing things than lego bridges but the same basic <laughs> thing happened mm-hmm. to those people as happened to me which was my first thought was what can I add? It wasn't that I couldn't think of subtracting. It just wasn't my first thought. I had to think more about it to get to the subtractive option. And I think so you've got to think more to get to it. And then some of these other things, um, whether, you know, your your calendar, for example, it's like you've got to work hard to overcome that guilt or to to really think through, okay, how do I want to display my competence and put it into one of these other buckets that you mentioned, Jonathan, instead of, you know, trying to do a, a quarter, quarter good job on a whole bunch of buckets. And so, but as long as we think that that's easy, we're even less likely to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a form of easy less, and that's just like not doing anything. Right. But what we're talking about here is, Hey, we we've added, we've either added or somebody else has added, or we know we can add. And now we're going to decide, Nope, uh, we're actually going to do even more and take something away. Talk about how subtraction could play into the environment and climate change. Yeah. And that's, I mean, really my, scholarship and you know my the thing that i work the most on is is climate change basically the problem here with a lot of the environmental issues climate change included is that we've just done too much right so climate change the fundamental issue now is there's more parts per million by quite a bit of co2 in the atmosphere than scientists know is safe to be there and so we've got to take some away so just on a very physical level it's like the solution has to include some subtraction. And I know, you know, we've got to stop adding to, right, anything that we can do to be efficient with how we're using fossil fuels um, and switch to different forms of energy. But even if we switched everything today, we'd still have more parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. And so we've got to think about ways to get it out. And, you know, sometimes people think, oh, well, that just means like geoengineering and some of these like kind of dark technologies or or seemingly dark before you know about them. But you can also pull CO2 out of the atmosphere by planting trees. Mm. Um, And so, again, I'm not I'm not saying what the right things are to do, but I am saying we need to be considering subtraction as an option. And when it comes to these environmental issues, climate change in particular, subtraction seems like it's the the better option, all else being equal. And what I would say, obviously, uh, this is 
well, you said this, we get into philosophical things here, mm -hmm. and I think this is a little philosophical, but the, um, you know, our geological epoch is called the Anthropocene. And the, the reason for that is that it's like, okay, there's one species that has become the dominant influence on the planet that supports all of us. And that species, of course, is, is humans. Mm. And so then you're like, okay, well, we're trying to address these planetary issues, we've got to address the behavior of that species that is the dominant influence on these planetary issues. And so if you look at it from that conceptual slash philosophical level, it's like if you're really serious about addressing these planetary issues, you've got to be serious about the human behavior. And mm -hmm. if we've shown that human behavior, if there's like a slight bias towards adding, that could be problematic as we get to be making decisions that inf as we have been making decisions that influence the entire planet we yeah. add more than we subtract and yet kind of throw things out of balance and again i'm not you know obviously lots and lots of things need to happen for our response to climate change but that is where i think that this insight and this approach to making change kind of fits into that really important issue yeah i mean i think of of course uh certain brands like patagonia who say mm -hmm. you know if you're gonna buy this coat uh, wear it for 20 years and we'll fix it for you and right we we see a kind of interest in things like that and then you know there's another part of my brain that says we have an entire economy that's based around buying more crap you know mm -hmm. and seeing profits and companies grow how how do we get away from this concept of addition to just keep this economy moving? I mean, how would mm -hmm. you think about something like that? Yeah, I was talking to Steve Levitt. He wrote Freakonomics, and yeah. he um, he's an economist, obviously, but he's also really good at just explaining economics concepts to lay people like me when it comes to economics. And so I was asking about this and uh, because what I talk about in the book is, well, you know, metrics like GDP are skewed. So gross domestic product is this metric that measures our economic well-being. And but the problem with gross domestic product is it just measures it only goes in one direction, mm. just goes up based on all the activity. So if we build a prison, that increases gross domestic product. If yeah. we pollute the climate, that increases gross domestic product. And what Levitt said was pretty close to what I was already thinking, but he said it more articulately probably and and made me more confident that it was actually right, is that like that in fact is a big part of the problem is our skewed metrics. Because, you know, economics, as he put it, was just should be measuring value, value created. And gross domestic product in that case, when it's measuring a prison is is, create, is measuring something that is not in fact a value and actually mm -hmm. is negative in value. So yeah, um, without changing fundamentally the economic system, if you could more closely align the metrics with what we really value, then that would be a step in, in the right direction. And then, then subtracting could add up um, <laughs> mm. where it's like you've got, then you could subtract to add value, whether it's, you know, the Strider bikes taking off the pedals or whether it's, you know, pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. And then those things would re be reflected as a positive in our, in our economic accounting. Well, I, I guess psychologically, how do we get people to think about subtraction as an option? And and at the same time, I do wonder if, if we're seeing, you know, other interesting cultural things happening. I mean, you know, on a very pop level, Marie Kondo, stuff like yeah. that, or, or tiny homes, or all <laughs> these things that I feel like are kind of percolating around us. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I hope it's shifting. I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, based, back to your astute observation about just like kind of uh, this moment in history it's like okay adding has really helped us a lot but now that we've added a lot subtracting is more beneficial and so maybe condos of the world are a response to that what i hope you know the book can do but also like just this podcast or this this interview can do is help people have the reminders in their own head for the situations that they encounter. And that's easier said than done. I mean, we haven't found much evidence that like, oh, having somebody think about subtracting on a, a Lego task then carries over to when they're trying to improve their schedule, mm -hmm. for example. But what people can do, and this is something you could do after listening to this interview, is, is think about the situations that you encounter in your day-to-day -day life. Um, the stop doing list is an example of this and put in place cues 
just to, hey, Lighty, I'm going to remind myself to, sub- to consider the option of subtracting in this situation. And so in my, you know, I do it for my stop doing list, but I can also do it when my wife and I sit down and do our kind of weekly parent organization session. We can also remember to think about, okay, here's all the stuff we got to do to get the kids ready for school, but also are there things that we're currently doing that we can take away as we're rearranging our mental furniture to think of it more often in, in through um, interviews like this, through reading the book, um, hopefully through maybe society kind of shifting in this direction. In the meantime, we can have these reminders in place and uh, that'll make us more likely to think of it and then decide if it's something we actually want to do. I've been speaking with Lydie Klotz, professor at the University of Virginia and the author of Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. Um, Lydie, thanks so much for the time. I really enjoyed it. Yes, so did I, Jonathan. Thank you. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. We'll be back after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. One thing that our first guest, Lydie Klotz, suggested is that we live in a yes culture, which makes it hard to subtract things. Most of us habitually say yes to favors and invitations from friends and family. We say yes at work, not to miss out on a potential opportunity, and women are much more likely to say yes than men. Here's the dilemma, though. We feel guilty saying no. It makes us sound uncooperative, lazy, and not a team player. But saying yes also leads to a feeling of being constantly overwhelmed. So is there a way to say no in a socially acceptable way? Is there an art to refusal? Vanessa Patrick, professor of marketing and lead faculty at the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston, has spent years researching empowered refusal. She explains why saying no is so hard, but that learning to do just this can benefit our careers and our lives. Vanessa Patrick, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Talk to me a little bit about the cultural and, and I think the professional pressure of saying yes to everything. I feel like this is the world we live in. If, if you're not saying yes, there's something wrong with you. What, tell us a little bit about this phenomenon that we see playing out everywhere around us. We absolutely live in a yes culture. And the yes can come from innocuous places. So, for example, our email inbox, Uh, the Twitter notifications that we get, our texts, and not to mention the favors we do for friends and family or the numerous business opportunities that there are for us. So we really live in a culture where there's so many things going on and people are constantly busy because they feel the need to say yes to all these different things in case they lose out on a potentially good opportunity And that leads us to feel quite overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we absolutely are in a situation where we need to learn how to say no and do it in a strategic way that meets our needs so that we live the most fulfilling lives. Yeah. You've talked about this almost as as that we're socially conditioned to say yes. Is that right? As human beings, we are social animals, Mm -hmm. which means that we feel the need to connect to others, to be seen uh, positively in others' eyes, which basically means that we want to be cooperative and we want to have people like us and we want to uh, to have these positive reputations. And we very often feel that if we say no, it's going to damage that relationship with others, or it could make us sound as if we are lazy and uncooperative and not a team player, which in many ways makes us feel like we are obliged to say yes. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and my guess is that, that there may be differences uh, among uh, gender lines here in terms of how we have been socially conditioned. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Women are much more likely to say yes to workplace requests than men are. 
uh, it is, it's perhaps got to do with the fact that women see themselves as nurturing and good team players and cooperative. And it turns out that this is quite a problem. There's some research that comes out of Carnegie Mellon by Linda Babcock and her colleagues, where she shows that women are more likely to be asked to do what she calls non-promotable tasks. And not only do they get more asked, they are even more likely to say yes to those non-promotable tasks. So non-promotable tasks are tasks like uh, cleaning the break room refrigerator, or organizing a retirement party, or volunteering to bring coffee and donuts for a meeting. These tasks take time, uh, and they, they, but they have absolutely no effect on your professional progress or your professional advancement. They're just stuff that you do. Mm. And women take hold, you know, they carry the burden of doing pretty much uh, uh, all the non-promotable tasks in an organization, according to her research. Wow. That, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the women listening here are saying, yeah, uh, duh. I get that, but I, I have to say it's it's still kind of stunning to just sit with some of that information. It's pretty understandable because uh, saying no is an extremely hard thing to do. Uh, and very often we just say yes when we want to say no because in the short run, it's so painful to say no that you just say yes. And uh, if you say yes when you want to say no, essentially what you're doing is you are saying no to maybe other opportunities that, that come out, that might come your way. So this idea of opportunity cost or realizing that when you say yes to one thing, you are essentially saying no to something else that was perhaps more important for you to be, to be doing is something that we really need to wrap our head around and acknowledge. So let's let's talk about ways that we can practice saying no. You have this really wonderful term, um, which is empowered refusal. Uh, this is a big part of your research. Can you talk to me a little bit about that term and, and ways we can start integrating this into our everyday lives? Absolutely. So we know we need to say no to more things. The question is how, and this is the challenge that a lot of people face. So my research on empowered refusal is about learning to say no more effectively. Empowered refusal communicates the no response, but it does so from a place of uh, within yourself. It does so from a place of your identity. And so when you say no, which stems from within you, from who you are, you are less likely to get pushback and you are more likely to get compliance from the other person and not sever the relationship with the other person. And so one of the things that we have studied is how you actually communicate the actual words you should use in order to communicate the empowered refusal. We find in our research that words matter. The words that you use reflect your inner state, not only to others, but also to yourself. So whether it is in terms of self-talk or whether it's in terms of communicating to another person, the words we use give voice to our thoughts, our feelings, our values. And so what we've, what we've identified is that there is a set of language that is more empowering and others other set of language that is less empowering or disempowering and choosing language that is more empowering to communicate your refusal works what we've essentially identified in several studies is that using empowering language like saying i don't is much more effective than using disempowering language like saying i can't I don't signals that you are determined, you are talking from a place of power, that you know what you want and what you don't want. It conveys what you stand for and what you value. On the other hand, when you say I can't, it makes you feel disempowered. It sounds as if you're deprived and you can't do something. And it begs the question from the requester, why not? Mm. And then you have to, then you go into all of these reasons. I always like to say that no is a complete sentence, uh, which essentially uh, suggests that you do not need to give 
a ton of explanations as to why you are saying no, as long as it stems from a place of power. So empowered refusal has three key elements to it. One, it communicates very clearly that you are saying no. It is not a wishy-washy no, it is a clear no. Second, it stems from who you are. It stems from looking within by talking about what you care about, what your values, your priorities, and your preferences are, and communicating those in your no response. It is not an excuse. It is a reason. The third is because it stems from you, you are less likely to get pushback. And because you are not going to get the pushback from the other person, you also are able to secure that relationship with the other person. So it is a way of saying no that allows you to not only communicate the no response, but also to be able to have and continue to have a good relationship with the other person. Yeah, interesting. And and it's so true. I mean, when I think about saying, oh, I can't, yeah, it begs that exact question you're talking about. Well, why not? And, and it feels like a position of, of weakness, just, just as you alluded to. So uh, can you give me some examples of, of how to use the I don't? Because I, I'll admit that's that's not a phrase I'm I'm particularly um, comfortable with, or do I do I use it very frequently? So give me give me some examples, if you will. So let's imagine a couple of scenarios. The first one, you're at a dinner party at your boss's house and uh, your boss's wife's offering you some dessert. And you do not want to eat dessert because you have a variety of reasons why dessert is not on the table for you. Now, when you say, I can't eat dessert, uh, the you beg the question, why can't you eat dessert? Are you sick? Is everything okay? But if you say, I don't eat dessert or I don't eat chocolate cake, you're more likely to get compliance. Okay, fine, no problem. If you communicate to others that you do not take work calls between six and eight in the evening by saying, I don't take work calls between six and eight in the evening, people respect that. Mm. And so this this is the kind of so it's the basis of it in you know the big scheme of things. What you need is to start with a lot of self knowledge and self awareness of what your values are, what your preferences are, how you like to live your life, and then try and develop a system where you have these simple rules that you put in place for yourself, so that when a request comes your way, essentially you have a kind of framework by which you can respond to that request. Mm-hmm. I and love that piece. Yeah, that that know know who you are, know what you want, know know what you want to get out of a situation before you just launch into, you know, saying yes or no to something. There's another piece of research I thought was really fascinating in this because still some people may think um, even if I used these phrases, I, w- I would come across maybe as confrontational or maybe even aggressive or or just, you know, as someone I, I don't want to come across as. And there was a study, I think it was at Columbia University, they were looking at negotiations. And when people thought that, you know, they, they were putting up this kind of firm wall of saying no, they feared that the... The other folks on the other side of the bargaining table were thinking, oh, what a what an aggressive position. This person is being so rude. When really, um, we tend to overemphasize how bad we think we're acting. Really, the folks that we're witnessing said, okay, that's fine. That's not a big deal. Right? I think there's this, there's this tendency in us to think anytime we say something that we think could be interpreted as, as you know, uh, as mean or hostile or aggressive, it generally isn't as bad as we think. Do I have that right? We do have a sense that, you know, people are going to judge us more than they do. I like to do an example in my class where I show people this this kind of imaginary spotlight that people feel as soon as someone makes a request on, on them. Mm. And then the, the, the great thing about the spotlight is it's completely imaginary. And if you say no, the spotlight just shifts to the next person. And so realizing that people essentially need some stuff done, they might ask you for a favor. And sometimes you just have to realize that this is not for you. And uh, there are many, um, many, many successful people have recommended that one of the key elements of success is being the ability to say no. In fact, Warren Buffett said, uh, the difference between successful people and really successful people is that the really successful people say no to almost everything. Hmm. Uh, 
<laughs> Steve Jobs had an had a, another quote in which he said that it's only by saying no that you can concentrate on the things that are really important. And this is the, you know, so across the board. Um, the, people who are successful realize that they have to have a sense of focus and they realize that in, if you don't have that focus, you are more likely to not achieve your own personal goals. Um, I, I think uh, the, the, the general idea that when you say yes to others, we need to make sure that we are not saying no to ourselves, to what our dreams are, what our aspirations are. Um, so we, so, so uh, you know, this is the kind of, uh, it, it is important for us to learn this skill because no one teaches it to us. We don't learn it in school. We don't learn it in business school. Uh, we, we don't learn it in the workplace because you're rewarded for saying the yeses. But the real reward is when you achieve and fulfill your own dreams. Mm, yeah, exactly. And many uh, saying no means that you can essentially say yes to the things that, that really matter to you. You talked about this idea of, of self-talk a little bit earlier in the interview. I, I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit more. What, what does self-talk mean in the context of our conversation? So language has extreme power. And the language we use not only communicates to other people, it also communicates to ourselves where we stand. So for example, I did a really interesting research paper with a colleague of mine, Nicole Mead, uh, and we published it in the Journal of uh, Personality and Social Psychology. And essentially it looked at this idea of what we call strategic procrastination. So let's say that you have a temptation that's in front of you. Instead of saying, I can't, eat fried chicken. You essentially say, sure, I can have fried chicken, just not today. So we call it strategic postponement because essentially what that means is that you have given yourself permission to make whatever choice that you want to make. However, you have also made the decision to defer that choice. And in deferring that choice, what we found is that when the opportunity to eat fried chicken comes up later, you, you infer that you didn't really want fried chicken in the first place because you said no the first time. And so strategic postponement essentially takes you out of the heat of the moment and uses this language or self-talk to say, sure, you can have it, just not now, to an unspecific future. Uh, it is an effective way to communicate uh, a, a no to yourself. And so realizing that the language we use, the 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 the, the self-talk, the uh, self-talk is essentially the way we talk to ourselves, the we think in terms of words. And so if we use positive, empowering, supportive words, we hear those power, empowered, supportive words in our own heads. And so in, in dealing with ourselves and talking and, and dealing with pretty much any difficult situation, the way we talk to ourselves and how we approach the issue in our own heads affects the outcome. I like this quote from the Bhagavad Gita, which says, a man's own self is his friend, a man's own self is his foe. Mm. And so in many ways, how we talk to ourselves and whether we want to be friends to ourselves or whether we want to be our own enemies is a function of the nature of our self-talk. Mm, yeah, perfect, perfect line there. Thank you. I've been speaking with Vanessa Patrick, Professor of Marketing and Lead Faculty for the Bauer Executive Women in Leadership Program at the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston. Vanessa, thank you for the time. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I appreciate you having me on your show. As a final thought on today's discussion, we wanted to reflect on some recent specific high-profile examples of saying no, specifically from gymnast Simone Biles and tennis player Naomi Osaka. Both are top in their fields, and both were thrown into the spotlight after they decided to withdraw from competition this summer to protect their mental health. And this opened up a much larger conversation about our willingness to take a step back from high-pressure environments that may not be healthy. In this latest Guardian article, How to Win at Life, What Sports Psychologists Can Teach Us All, 
Award-winning feature writer Simon Osborne reflects on the profound effects that saying no has on elite athletes and ultimately on us. Well, Simon Osborne, welcome to Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Pleasure, pleasure. Talk to me a little bit about this this fascinating moment. Um, you're someone who covers sports, who covers culture. Um, is there anything that we've seen before like this at all in sports history? I don't think to this extent, or I don't think there has been such a kind of chain reaction almost of athletes saying, hold on a minute, like, is this isn't healthy, this isn't good for me, and saying, actually, I'm going to stop and you know and, and literally step off the, the sporting field um i can't think of a time when so many people have done that and i think it is a contagion thing um you know simone biles um said that she had been directly inspired by naomi saka the, mm-hmm. the Osaka, the tennis player who said she didn't appreciate or couldn't operate in the the arena of, of press conferences after matches right. But also, I think it's a product of the, the much wider conversation that uh, is, is kind of raging right now about mental health generally and, and how we look after ourselves and each other. Mm. Do you think this is an important message that they're putting out there? I think it is. I think, And I think what it has done, interestingly, is made athletes much easier to relate to. Because I think, you know, traditionally it's very easy to see someone like Simone Biles and what she does as, as superhuman. And that's the word that we use a lot when we look at uh, athletes at that level. But in kind of stepping back and, and, and owning up and showing um, and flagging her vulnerabilities emotionally and mentally, she suddenly became much more human. And I think what that has done in effect is kind of made everything about sports seem more relatable, including sports psychology and i and I, I wrote a piece recently for the guardian about sports psychology in the way psychologists and psychiatrists who have worked with elite athletes and maybe could be seen traditionally from the outside to be services to the elite are saying well actually you know more than ever the lessons um that uh, are important in elite sport can apply to to everyday life and the, you know the complicated emotional sort of maelstrom that we all face um even if it can feel more complicated than you know doing something crazy over a vault a lot of the techniques are increasingly being applied to everyday life sports are filled with with metaphor with lessons this idea of um a peak performance or going beyond the pain or or reaching to you know this different level within you which uh, is only accessible through, you know, severe training regimens and, and, and tolerating all the, the aches and cramps that come along with it. And I, that's kind of an ethos, I think, that, that's a big, um, big driver in the West, don't you? It's something I think we hold tight, that, that that's, that's a way to be, uh, a successful way to be in the world. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my own sport choice is, is road biking. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole kind of glory and suffering uh, aesthetic uh, fetish, you might say, in in that sport that uh, kind of started in the at the pro level, where you know cyclists would would take pleasure and pride in the amount of suffering that they could endure and, and yeah. still do, and it's sort of it's filtered down to the you know the the ex-golfers uh, who are now uh, cycling and spending loads of money on fancy gear and kind of inheriting some of those psychological expectations. Um, and it's probably not doing those, you know, 60-something cyclists much good either. Um, so if there's, I think what what sport probably needs to, to find a way to do, and maybe this summer is, is the kind of start of that, is, you know, find a way to, to be incredibly successful, world-beating, hugely entertaining. Um, and sure, it's going to be stressful. Life is stressful. But to do it in a way that uh, preserves mental health and, and therefore that could become as inspiring as the, the feats themselves. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the big themes we're talking about is, is and here we can really apply sports to it, which is that whether you're, you know, the cyclist shredding their legs over, you know, the hill in France, or you're just somebody who thinks the only way to be at my job is to take on an endless amount of tasks or duties 
and say yes to any anything that comes my way, perhaps we're starting to see the dark side of that now. Yes. And what I think will be really interesting, and, I, and I've had conversations about this with a lot of people my age, I'm in my late 30s, and I entered the workforce and journalism at a time when you were expected to suffer. It was kind mm. of similar. You yeah. were... You know, it was it was it was a hot house. It was it was difficult, and and it was supposed to be difficult. But now you speak to to um, editors my age who work with much younger journalists on the same journey, and they're just not up for that. Hmm. And it's the same in, in in architecture. My brother's an architect, and and I'm sure it's the same in lots of other fields. And and there's something hugely positive about that because it's it's a bit like Simone Simone Biles stepping off the vault. But the, the question becomes, you know, how do we sort of balance things so that you you get the kind of welfare and the safeguarding right, um, but also like getting the work done mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and being able to go to work um, uh, effectively and safely. I think I think we're going to kind of start a journey now, whether it's in elite sport or in, in workplaces all over the country and world towards some sort of better balance. And so yeah. I think that's positive, even if bosses uh, my age who I talk to uh, can sort of, you know, it's difficult. It's a whole cultural adjustment yeah. for them. Well, we're almost almost out of time, but but I know you looked very carefully at the psychology of some of this. And I, and I wonder if you could leave us with a few uh, a, a few tips that you've picked up from some psychologists who, who are looking at sports psychology in ways we may apply this to everyday life. Yeah, I think I, I did get lots of advice because I wanted this piece I wrote to be uh, useful in that way. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it is kind of common sense. It's things about, you know, dividing your bigger goal into achievable steps rather than being daunted by the kind of big picture. But then there are like little practical things that like you often see athletes uh, just before a, a, a big, uh, you know, vault or sprint or whatever it might be using self-talk as they call it, mm-hmm. like literally telling themselves, I can do this. I've done it before. I belong here. This is what I do. Uh, and that, you know, that has been shown to work. It can kind of sound a bit corny, I think. And and, and also just visualizing yourself achieving something. Psychologists advise athletes to do, like running the race through their head. And in, in, in non-sporting terms, that might be running the, the pitch or the job interview. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the, it's the combination of those kind of quite practical, arguably sort of obvious things, um, as well as the kind of bigger picture stuff that we've been talking about. Simon Osborne's story in The Guardian is called How to Win at Life, What Sports Psychologists Can Teach Us All. Simon, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. You can also find us at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.